Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today my guest is Peggy Orenstein, who's the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Girls and Sex, Boys and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and more. I wanted to have a conversation. So I've had a few episodes on having the sex talk. I've had a few episodes on puberty. But what I wanted to do with Peggy was talk about the really in the weeds, hard stuff that's just like, oh God, this makes me uncomfortable. So not just sex and not just kind of setting the stage for conversations and the idea of having respect, responsible, and pleasurable experiences. I also wanted to talk to her about what is happening, what's actually happening with teens and sex. So even if you have young kids, this conversation is very relevant, but then we go into what's going on, what are the trends, what do we need to know about what's going on, and porn and what's going on there, and how to have these conversations, but also how to figure out what's going on for ourselves so that we can better navigate all of this. If you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a review. I would suggest not listening to this episode with your kids. I would suggest this one not be something they overhear in the back seat of the car. This is a conversation that really dives into our own experience. So have a listen and then pull from that some ideas about navigating different discussions and different ways to set the tone in your household, depending on your kids' ages. Of course, you can always DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast, and we'll keep these conversations going. So I think it goes without saying that we're at an age where it's really hard to know what is happening in this in in the world of girls and boys and sex because we just came to be in this world at a very different time. Yeah. So I would love for you to help those of us raising boys and girls and any children however they identify <laughs> which is also part of the conversation. Right. Right, it is. How to unpack all of this so that we can best support our kids. So, you know, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I think for a lot of us, honestly, that we put so many restrictions on our 
children as they were growing up, and rightly so, you know, with all this media, whether it was parental controls or, you know, keeping it in your, in your room instead of theirs or like all these things that were constantly like trying, like, you know, like whack-a-mole. And then during the pandemic, it was like the wheels came off and you just thought, this is the only thing they've got. This is where they're in school. This is the only way they can connect with friends. And they're in their rooms as teenagers and you don't really know what they're doing. And I think we lost a lot of control is maybe the wrong word, but influence and awareness of what they were doing. It's hard for us to keep up with things. And also it's very hard to stay flexible. And we have to stay flexible in order to figure out how to navigate this because things change in real time. Mm -hmm. They really do. And I have to say that one of the joys of having a college student age child is that you just got to give it up. You know, (laughs) now it's on them. It's not your problem anymore. So that has actually vastly improved my relationship with my child. (laughs) But it causes a lot of conflict. But, But, you know, but back to the sexuality piece, you have to be aware that a lot of those, a lot of the flirtation, a lot of the whole hookup culture and, and deciding who's going to be hooking up with who on the party and do you like somebody, do you not like somebody, all of that is happening online for better or for worse. So it's another area that, it's, that we need to really educate ourselves on. And, and, it's, and then, you know, pornography, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. Oh, yes. Um, and all of that has ended up in a situation where, in fact, in terms of, if you define sex as heterosexual intercourse, which, you know, I advocate that we should define it much more broadly than that. But the research is showing that kids are doing that less, that particular activity, less than they did perhaps in our generation, Mm -hmm. in part, I think, because a lot is going on online and because some of that is overwhelming and even somewhat frightening and kind of makes them pull back from a more from appropriate sexual development and the expectations about what sex should and shouldn't be and the kind of hookup anonymity aspect of it, I think makes young people uncomfortable, even as it's being glamorized. So to go back to, because I think that's such an important thing for us to really understand is that sex is defined so differently now and so much is happening. Because I mean, when I was growing up, when we were growing up, sex was heterosexual sex or it was intercourse in general, but that was that was pretty clear. In fact, yeah. that was like a whole controversy. Whether oral sex was sex was a big controversy. It still is a controversy. And that's actually, I think, to the detriment. And we, and we perpetuate that when we talk to our kids. And I think that's to the detriment, particularly of girls. Because Tomorrow. what it ends up happening is there's a pressure on them then. Because if that's not really sex, what's the big deal? And they would frequently say to me when I was interviewing teenagers, and this was particularly, you know, true in high school, that they would say, well, you know, oral sex is no big deal. That's it's like they all read that on an Instagram post or something, at least if boys were on the receiving end. And they had a lot of reasons for that. They, you know, they felt it was a way to improve a relationship or it boosted social status or it made them feel desired or, you know, it was a way to avoid the emotional intimacy they thought would happen with intercourse. Sometimes it was a way to get out of an uncomfortable situation. So I remember a sophomore in college saying to me that she, that, you know, sometimes you do it at the end of the night because you don't want to sleep with the guy, but he expects to be satisfied. So if I want him to leave and I don't want anything to happen, you know, and like you unpack that, why she thinks that's nothing happening, why the guy's expecting to be satisfied, why she has to, you know, be worried enough about her safety 
that she has to perform a sex act to get somebody to go away. And why um, that and why the boy will not feel the same sense of obligation because it was well, sex. Right. And that's the other, you know, I start, so I started saying to girls because I heard all these stories of one-sided oral sex. I started saying, you know, what if every time you were with a guy, he told you to get him a glass of water from the kitchen, but he never got you a glass of water. Or, you know, if he did, it was like, you mean you want me to, you know, like, like really begrudging, right? I mean, they would not stand for it. And they would laugh when I said that. And they'd say, well, when you put it that way. And I'd say, well, why wouldn't you put it that way? Why would you be more willing to perform a sex act on somebody than to get him a glass of water from the kitchen? And it wasn't only that boys were unwilling. I don't want to put, you know, too much of the onus for that on boys, but it was also that girls had learned a lot of shame and anxiety around their genitals, that they were like both icky and sacred. So on one hand, girls were always saying things like, you know, I'm proud of my body. Why shouldn't I show it off by, you know, wearing a a skimpy outfit on Instagram or going to a party? But then maybe not so proud of their body when it came to their feelings around their genitals, or maybe not so proud of their body. If, you know, one girl said to me, she showed me a picture of herself in one, you know, the kind of typical, she was going to a frat party wearing little crop top and, you know, short skirt and stuff. And she said, I'm proud of my body. I like to show it off. I never feel more liberated than when I'm wearing skimpy clothing. And for, you know, women of a certain age, that's confusing. It is. Right. But so then five minutes later, she said she wouldn't have worn that outfit a year earlier because she was 25 pounds heavier. And she said some, you know, jerky guy at the party might've called her the fat girl quote, and that would have been bad for her mental health. So, you know, putting aside for a second, why being called fat is kryptonite, how, you know, who gets to be proud of what body under what circumstances and who gets to decide is a really good question. And like, how proud are you of your body? If you're, if you feel this kind of embarrassment or horror or concern around your, your genitals to such an extent that you're willing to prioritize somebody else's sexual pleasure rather than your own, because you just don't want to go there. And I, and I remember, you know, in noticing when I was reporting that girls would talk about boys wanting oral sex and they would do the, the shoulder push down, oh, Wow, you know, which yeah. of course we know is tell our boys, that's not good. But when they would talk <laughs> about everybody, right. About boy about boys going down on them, they would do the opposite, like the armpit pull. I started calling it like, to get them away from there. Oh my god! So it was such a stark difference in expectation uh-huh. around that issue. God, that's so, so true. How do you have that conversation so that your girls start to have the expectation that their pleasure is important? That the boys start to have the expectation that everybody's pleasure is important, and and not to push the, you know, push down the shoulders. And also that these are meaningful things that you do in relationships and they are intimate and intimacy isn't limited to the big sex act of right. Heterosexual intercourse. And the emotional piece too, you know, the piece, the piece about caring for your partner. We tend to say to boys, you know, respect women. That's where we tend to end that conversation. Right. What does that actually mean? What does that mean? You know, I mean, w- one of the boys I interviewed said, it's like saying, don't hit any little old ladies and then handing your son the car keys. Like, of course, you don't want to hit any little old ladies, but you still don't know how to drive, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, it's a combination. I mean, there's always something in the media 
You can listen to podcasts like this. I always say, you know, it's a good idea if you're in the car because they can't get away and uh, there's no eye contact when you're walking, if you're gardening, you're playing ball with with the boys. I think particularly um, being in motion um, and and not not also confronting them directly about their own behavior, but saying, you know, I was listening to this podcast today and this parenting podcast with uh, Aliza Pressman and her guest was talking about this thing with like how kids tend to think of oral sex as not sex and not intimate and that can put pressure on people. And I wonder if you've heard that among your friends or, you know, she talked about the shoulder push versus the armpit pull. I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, there's part of them that's going to go, oh God. But, you know, there's also the more we talk about these issues, the easier it becomes. It's like working a muscle, right? So one of the things I talk about in Girls and Sex, I at the end of it, I have a whole... I go into a sex education class, but I also talk about the differences between the Dutch and the American approach to talking about sexuality with our kids. And they looked at uh, some researchers did a comparison of 400 American and Dutch students at two demographically similar colleges about their early experiences around sex. And the Dutch girls, oh gosh, they had everything we say we want for our kids, right? It was like, you know, on the disease risk side, there were fewer pregnancies, they were more prepared, there was less disease, there was less regret, they were less likely to be drunk, you know, and on the positive side, they knew their partners very well, they were able to say what they wanted, they were more likely to have enjoyed the experience, all these things. So when they interviewed them one-on-one to look at the differences, they said they found that the Dutch uh, parents, teachers, and doctors talked to their young, their kids from a very early age about sex about mutual caring and love, and about sexual pleasure. And while the American parents weren't necessarily less comfortable, or the Dutch parents weren't necessarily more comfortable talking about sex, we tend to speak entirely in terms of risk and danger when we talk about sex. And maybe reproduction. Yeah, reproduction, not getting pregnant, not getting diseases, you know, things like that. It's assault. I think that's the new way to talk about sex and only focus on risk and danger, uh, even though it's important, obviously. Dutch parents talk about balancing responsibility and joy. And that is such a profound shift. I mean, for me as a parent, I thought, wow, if I hadn't looked into that, I would have talked to my own child about, and I have a girl, I would have talked to my own daughter about, you know, birth control and disease protection and consent. And I would have thought, okay, job well done. And now I know that that is just not nearly enough. And either, you know, if you can't do it, maybe your sister can do it or, or your best friend, or maybe you have the books around the house, or maybe you tell her which website, I mean, something that gives, and boys too, that gives them the information. Because if you're, again, you know, if you're not giving them the information, they're getting it. They're going to get it online. They're going to get it mostly. They're going to get it from pornography. One thing for people who are really uncomfortable with these conversations because they don't feel like it aligns with their values, it's important to ask yourself, if I want to integrate our values in in this household into the discussion, then I need to have the discussion before. For sure. You know. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter when you, you know, you expect, want, believe your child should be engaging. You want to make sure that the information that they have around what sexuality is and isn't, around emotional connection, around sexual pleasure, around how you treat your partner, all of that is there for them. Whether you think that they should be 
you know, exploring in a developmental way in their teens or whether you think they should be abstinent until marriage. Although, you know, most people who say they're going to, I, in the girl, in the, in girls and sex, I go into a community where that is the case, where they're teaching abstinence till marriage. And the fact is statistically, those children who pledge that will not remain abstinent till marriage and their rates of pregnancy and disease will be much, much higher. higher because of the lack of information they have. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor. You've got to go get all of your checkups done. It's that time of year. It's fall. Catch up on everything that you need to do. It's so important. And you can do that with ZocDoc. It's a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. And that is so much easier for scheduling. And then you can stop dreading figuring out how to make these appointments and get to them. On ZocDoc, you can find every specialist under the sun, whether you're trying to straighten your teeth, fix your achy back, get a mammogram or a mole checked out or anything else. ZocDoc has you covered. And you can find and review local doctors, read verified patient reviews from real people who made real appointments. And then when you walk into the doctor's office, you're all set to see someone in your actual network who gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com, find the doctor that is right for you, and book an appointment in person or remotely that works for your schedule. Go to ZocDoc.com humans and download the ZocDoc app for free and start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash humans. ZocDoc.com slash humans. Make sure you find the right doctors in network that are well-reviewed. Get to it. I was talking to a group of teens over the summer because I can't help but get so ex- like whenever I'm in a cluster of teens, I just I'm so happy. <laughs> I know. Me too. <laughs> so they were talking about their camp experiences and I wanted to know what everybody was doing. And one of the girls referenced fingering, how that was like a big uh-huh. thing, fingering. And I, I said, oh, what is fingering to you? And the way it was explained to me was so funny because in no universe would it be pleasurable for a girl. Right. Right. I know. That's what I would. So I would talk to girls. I know exactly what you're talking about. I hate that word. It's like, I remember from when I was a kid, that was like a very misunderstood use of hands. And yes, I right. am like, Oh my God, that's still <laughs> happening. It's still, I know it's so gross. And so, but so we would talk about masturbation, right? And I would talk out with girls, you know, something like, hmm, I think it's only 40% of girls 14 to 17 have ever masturbated. I think that's the stat. I'm not sure on that off the top of my head, but to which I have to say, my editor would always go, really? I'd say, okay, I get it. But yeah, (laughs) but so you're in the other percentage. I get that. Uh, But when I would ask girls about masturbation, so often they would say to me, no, I don't do that. I have a, I mean, I have a boyfriend to do that is what they would say, who's like the same guy who's like, you know, poking around on there, like he's looking for his car keys, you know, whatever. But boys would say, if a girl offered, you know, a hand job, let's just call it that, 
they would say, no, I can do that myself. I want oral sex. So again, you get this like disparity of expectation and connection to your own body and pleasure and entitlement to that. And one of the things that, Mm -hmm. right. And one of the things I talk about is in, in girls and sex in particular is Sarah McClellan, who is a psychologist at the university of Michigan, who coined my favorite term, which is intimate justice. And what that meant to me, and it's really the context for all the work that I did in, or, or, or kind of zapped it into focus for me, was that sex has political implications as well as personal ones. Just like, you know, like we know who does the dishes in your home, right? Or, or who vacuums the rug or who diapers the baby. And it brings up those similar issues of gender inequality or economic disparity or racial inequality or violence or mental health. And so intimate justice asks us to consider who is entitled to engage in a sexual experience? Who is entitled to enjoy the experience? Who is the primary beneficiary of the experience? And how each partner defines good enough? And honestly, I think, especially for women, those are really tricky questions at any age. I think they're tricky in your 20s and your teens and your 40s and your 50s and your 70s. But I think, you know, when I thought about that, I just, I kept thinking I didn't want, what my hope was, was that by doing this work, that I didn't want girls' early experiences to be something that they had to get over. And I think too often right now, that's, you know, not necessarily that they're assault per se, but there's something they have to get over. When, when you have somebody, you know, we're joking about fingering, you've got somebody poking around inside you like that, and it's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good. It isn't giving you pleasure. In fact, you're thinking, what is going on? And am I supposed to like this? You know, you got to get over that later. That's something you got to get over. So how are we engaging in these conversations just to try to move the conversation to some practical applications, because this is such good stuff to just think about. And part of this Mm -hmm. really is our job to think. Well, we didn't learn it, right? We didn't learn it. So how are we supposed to teach what we never learned? And maybe what we are still struggling with, in fact, in our own lives. And so I wish I could give you a script. I wish I could say, say this, say that, say the other. I can't because I don't know no, and you're you right. or your child or their exactly. age. Exactly. You know? And I actually, I, scripts, I, I, prefer, I prefer sort of things to think about than scripts yeah. because you don't only have this conversation once. Scripts are very right. easy to see through after one pass at it. And everybody has a different, you know, even within my own household, I have to use different language Per kids. Yeah. Your children are different personality wise. They're different Absolutely. genders. They're different, you know, sexualities. They're different, whatever they are. Yeah. So, like, what are, so I could see, you know, first kind of coming to terms with and really sorting through or at least introducing yourself to how you feel about all of these things. Yeah. So that you can, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I'm such a big fan. I mean, in terms of trying to meet your child where they're at or, trying to figure out what resources you can provide. I just, on, on my website, which is just my name, PeggyErnstein.com, I just did like this incredibly long list of like breaking it up into everything you could possibly be thinking about, you know, I think, I hope, so that you can sort of find the resources that you need, many of which are free and online, some of which are books. They're for the kids themselves. They're for you know, of all ages and gender identities and sexualities. They're for the parents, for everybody. 
So I think that that is one thing that can help you as a guide. Also recognizing that when you're educating your child, that it is about something broader, you know, that, that when you're talking to straight kids, don't forget about talking about other sexualities because otherwise they remain stigmatized. And when, for instance, in sex, sex education classes in high school, we don't talk about, we don't say gay, for instance. When we don't say gay to straight kids, we leave gay sexuality or other sexualities in the dark. And that further stigmatizes them. That leaves room for bullying or marginalizing gay kids. So making sure that we're really talking. And again, that's going to require educating ourselves because if parents are already uncomfortable talking about straight kids and straight sex, then you're starting to talk about other sexualities and other sexual practices. You're just like, Wah! but it's, it's really important. And recognizing that also it doesn't have to all be on you. You know, I know that when one of my siblings uh, daughters was a teenager and this was before I had written these books, they asked if I would talk to her about some of these issues as she was getting closer to her boyfriend, because it felt like it might be easier for her to, her to hear that conversation from me. And so I took her out to lunch. And honestly, I wanted to fall through the floor. I'm not going to pretend like I didn't, you know, that's okay. As long as that doesn't stop you. And I was talking to her, I said, you know, I, I, I see that you're getting closer with your boyfriend. And Maybe you're thinking about what you guys are going to do sexually, and maybe you're thinking about intercourse now. And I already knew she was because her mother told me. And I said, but you know, I'd, I'd like you to ask yourself some questions around this. Like, have you had an orgasm yourself? Have you had an orgasm with him? What is it that you are hoping for from this experience? You know, what, what, how, how do you treat one another? You know, like, some, just some questions to think about that aren't about like, you know, obviously, you know, contraception and all of that too. But beyond that, so thinking about what you want this experience to be like for you, what else you've experienced, how you're thinking about sex, how you're thinking about your sexual relationship with this person, and you know, do you want to be doing this now or not? Is it is you know how what what does that mean to your relationship and what does that mean to you? And she just sat there like with her eyes like saucers, not saying a word. She just stared at me, and I'm you know thinking, fall through the floor, please, fall through the floor, please, you know, strike me dead. But we had, you know, I, I said what I wanted to say to her and she's now 31, I think, married actually to a woman. And we have a relationship that I, for one, treasure. And we have been able to talk through the years, through high school, through college and beyond about all kinds of things that were hard, whether it was, you know, stuff with her education, stuff with work, stuff with her sexuality, as she recognized that she was gay, various things that she always felt she should, could come to me and talk to me. And I feel like it was from that moment. And when we show up for our children, when we model how to have hard conversations, when we model that vulnerability, you know, we're doing something big. We're doing something that improves. It's an opportunity to improve our relationship and scaffold not only the conversation about sex, but the conversation and the advisory role that we want to have for our children when they're adults. So this can be a lot of great things. And it's also okay to say, you know, I didn't talk about that the way I wanted to when we spoke earlier. I, I need to try again on that. This is hard for me. Or I don't know the answer to that question right now, but I'll find out and I'll get back to you. Or gosh, I blew that. You know, I mean, you don't have to get it right. You just have to start somewhere. You just have to start where you can start. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor, KiwiCo. 
what we learn at a young age, as we talk about all the time, really sticks with us. And so fostering a lifelong love of learning is a worthy investment. You can make learning fun and take a little bit of the work out for yourself by getting KiwiCo subscription boxes. They're so cool. They make it engaging and fun to take on lots of cool projects. And KiwiCo subscription delivers super cool hands-on projects for kids of all ages. And instead of feeling like you don't have the energy and you cannot think of what to do, and so you give up and just put the TV on, it just buys you some time to yourself. Maybe have a cup of coffee, read the paper, but know that your child is completely engrossed and occupied with something super cool and educational. Or join your child because you're not exhausted from coming up with a project. Now, I love child-led projects, but sometimes that's really exhausting. And when that happens, it's so great to be able to have KiwiCo because those subscription boxes make sure that there's something for everybody. Spark the love of learning today with the KiwiCo subscription. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code humans at kiwico.com. That's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com promo code humans. When thinking about where are you in the conversation and how, what feelings does it bring up in you? And, and I was thinking about two parents that came to me asking about something. And I thought those are moments when I understand that in the service of being so connected and so open, we can end up really alienating our kids on the other side mm-hmm. of it, talking about things too much, getting too in there. And for sure. So this, there were two things that happened. One, a parent, I'm trying to sort of shift the story enough that it's not recognizable, but the question ultimately came to, after finding certain things in her daughter's room she wanted to know if she should just purchase items that would help support her daughter's sexual growth and mm-hmm. sexual explora- exploration for masturbating. And so that was one person. And it felt a little bit like I wanted to ask them to just consider alternatively if that might be intrusive. Yeah. And how to find the balance between intrusiveness and being an askable open parent. And so one of those, it's also temperament dependent on your kid. And it might've mm-hmm. been my own sort of like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like that. Well, I appreciate though. I think what's really beautiful about that is uh, aside from wanting your child to explore their body is that that parent managed to take a minute, you know, like yeah. I think so often we, we don't, we just see and react. Right. Yeah. Or, and, and particularly this is true. I always say around the the whole pornography conversation, you know, you see that your child, you, you accidentally walk in, your son's watching pornography and you freak out every minute. Mm -hmm. And what you really need to do is stop, take a minute, breathe, think about what you need to say and want to say, and then go back at it later. Which is the answer Um, to everything. And there are certain things mm -hmm. that we, you know, we want to provide information, but also let our kids unfold as they're going to and discover and explore and not be alongside them the entire time. And I think it's a fine balance. And sometimes to say, you know, I, I, I have opinions about this that I'd like to share. Do you want me to share them? Yes. Right. 
I mean, is this, that's a good one too. I know my daughter would often say, no, <laughs> I do not want your opinion on that. Absolutely. Do <laughs> you want you. my advice or do you want me to just listen yeah. or do you want me to just bow out? So on the other side of it, it was a parent who was exactly that, seeing what they're seeing the history on their child's, mm-hmm. I'm saying child, it was a teenager, their yeah. teenage boy's computer and feeling like they didn't like the choices. And so should they yeah. curate, what, did I have any recommendations for more sort of equality oriented porn, yeah. more mindful porn? And I just was like, okay, this is also feels like, do you want to be, there's a TV show about this. I can't remember. It's a sex ad or something, but do you want right. to be so involved in your teen's experience with masturbation and curiosity and pornography that you're not only talking to them about it, but you're curating and recommending best. You know, right. the best. And, and I think these have longer term implications. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think you have to even start one step back, which is that curiosity about sex, totally normal. You know, masturbation, yay. It's great for everybody, girls, boys, everybody in between and beyond those designations. And you know, yeah, we could talk about ethical porn, queer porn, feminist porn, but that's not really what what kids watch. You know, that's all behind a paywall. And what happened was, you know, the internet, the smartphone, yes, but also it's that into it really changed in two thousand seven because Pornhub went online and it dropped the paywall. So now, you know, the porn that they're watching is free. You know, everything's free, and that free porn in addition to potentially being non-consensual and exploitative, you know, we know that that's been a huge issue on these sites. It shows sex as something men do to rather than with women. It portrays female pleasure as a performance for male satisfaction. It shows these wildly unrealistic bodies. It eroticizes inequality and misogyny. And, you know, again, even in like a lot of the really sort of vanilla clips, what they do wouldn't really feel good to a lot of people and especially women. And so I think, you know, you have to sort of break down not only what porn is, but also what it's not, you know, it's not intimate. It's not close. It's not realistic. It's not a realistic view of what people do together of like the messiness and silliness and embarrassment and all the other things that can be the, you know, the funniness, the emotional closeness with sex. And, you know, again, it's, I think it's multiple conversations. And again, I have, I do have resources for people that I think are useful on my website at different ages, for instance, for younger kids, like, I mean, it's so awful to have to think about this when your child is nine or 10 years old. I wish you didn't. I really wish you didn't. But there is this online, a site called amaze.org, A-M-A-Z-E.org. Yeah, you know, amaze. They have really good videos on talking, a four-year child about pornography that are age appropriate to middle schoolers and because I really found that that is actually an area where there is a dearth of resources is there's like puberty education yes but there's nothing else you know I that's when they're going to come across it that is exactly when they all you know and I will say especially with boys I never said girls are less likely to watch pornography but they are far more likely than their mothers are or were and they are far more likely to watch extreme content than their mothers are or were Boys too more than their fathers, but girls even more. And are girls watching it to learn how to be sexy? Yes. I mean, I'm sure they watch it for gratification as well, but their masturbation, but they are often watching it to see what they think boys like. And there's a physiological response that explains why extreme images can provoke a response that you don't like or want 
like an erection. I mean, we all know you can get an erection, you know, in math class for no reason or, you know, whatever, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're turned on. And so Emily Degoski, who writes about the science of desire, she compares it to like being tickled when by somebody that you don't like, right? It might make you laugh, Uh but that doesn't mean you're enjoying the experience. That's such a great way of explaining it. Right. So the like fancy word for that is it's called arousal non-concordance. And it's why a a woman could lubricate or orgasm during an assault. That's just the body doing what the body does. It doesn't mean that you want what's happening. And that, you know, for girls, that brings up things like when you read 50 shades of gray and she says, you know, I don't want this. And he says, but your body does, you know, like, no, she just said she doesn't want it. The body's just being the body. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's really important too to recognize that the only way that you know is if somebody says that they want it. Really but when some message it, those are really important messages. Really for, important. For right. Kids to learn and everybody to learn. It's right. Everybody. And I think it really helps kids who are feeling ashamed of the experience that they think they're not supposed to like, but they think their body's telling them they like. And their body's telling them that they want it. So you know, so when something is both sexual and taboo, so that you just have a response because something's sexual and your body's going, oh, this is sexual. Your body isn't judging whether you want it, whether you don't want it, whether it's good, whether it's bad or anything. It's just like sex is happening. Something sexual is happening. This is how I respond to that. But when something is both sexual and taboo, then it can, you know, like eroticized violence, which a lot of kids see, it triggers a response that's like, if I said to you, Elise, I don't want you to think about polar bears. Just stop it. Stop thinking about polar bears, yeah, right? No, I've seen you weren't thinking about polar bears, <laughs> right? Right. But embedded in that idea of don't think about polar bears is think about polar bears. So embedded in don't respond to that sexually relevant material because it's disgusting is respond to that sexually relevant material, even though it disgusts you. And the tension of that can actually turbocharge arousal and make something that's objectionable to you even more exciting than something that you overtly desire. And so I think understanding that, especially for boys, but for girls as well, Uh can maybe help them have some control over their experience a little bit and think about whether, like, do I want this? Do I like this? I remember when my daughter was like 11, I think, we were driving and there was, for some reason, there were these posters or these billboards, I mean, up in our town that said porn kills love. I don't know who was putting those up. And I asked her, you know, I said, do you know what pornography is? And she said, yes, mom, I know what it is. I don't look at it, you know? And I was like, okay. And we talked about it a little bit. And then that night we were watching some movie that was not a explicit movie, but it showed that kind of classic thing where somebody there's like kiss, kiss, kiss. And then apparently they've had intercourse and there's nothing in between, you know? And I thought that's pretty unrealistic too. And so I said, you know, honey, you know, like when they show a cab ride in the movies and they show you, they show somebody getting into the cab and then they show them getting out of the cab, but they don't show the whole cab ride and all the things that happen and all the things they're seeing out the window and everything, because that would take up the whole movie and they don't have time for that. Similarly, (laughs) when they're showing a sex scene in a movie, they show the beginning, they show the end, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening in between that you're not seeing. We don't go kissing to intercourse. That's not what happens. And I think that repetition in the media constantly of kissing to intercourse, kissing to intercourse, kissing to intercourse, I think that gets in kids' heads too. So many years ago, I was teaching 
elementary school sex ed, human development, fifth and sixth graders. And I was at my best friend's house and her son, who's never listening to this podcast. <laughs> so it's fine. And he, it was years ago, but I said, Hey, I'm curious. Do you know what pornography is? And he was at the time in fifth grade. And he said, yeah, of course. And I said, oh, will you tell me what you think it is? And he said, well, it's something that you're not supposed to watch, but I don't actually know what. And so I took that as one of, you know, a great lesson, which is in these moments, like when you see the billboard or when you're asking those questions, the first answer, if you can keep going just a little bit, Mm -hmm. you get so much more information because sometimes that first sort of superficial and, and then you don't get the sense of like one and done. Like we, okay, we went over that. Great. Glad you, right. glad you know, but there's a lot of nuance and then it doesn't have to be one conversation, but these little moments where you can just say like, oh, there's, there's a billboard. Let's acknowledge it. And, you know, introduce this conversation. I mean, right. I'm in, it's a start. It's, it's a process. A start. Exactly. And you can't, I mean, Gosh, it's so interesting because I feel like when I was young, when I was in college, if I saw like a guy had a playboy game, that would be weird. Like you would, you know, I mean, maybe he'd say I'm reading for the articles or something, but I don't think I ever like, have. If you now that you mention it, like I don't, you're I don't right. think like you, were younger, you would think that was the thing that, you did openly. No, and and you would think you know that guy has some sketchy ideas about women, maybe, yeah. or you know, like, like you would, you don't expect, you didn't expect your partner to be watching pornography or looking at pornography. I think you would, I think most people of all genders now, young people expect and assume that their partners watch pornography. And that's, that's a pretty normalized thing. Now, you know, you can argue about, is that good? Is that bad? Whatever. But it definitely has an impact. And yeah, I mean, some of, yeah, I mean, that's what I would argue, but I mean, some of it, you know, there's some research on liberalizing practices, like people who watch porn regularly are more, you know, pro affirmative action or this or that, but there's a lot of research on ways that it undermines development and undermines their own sexual satisfaction. And so ultimately, what are we interested in here? We're interested in their sexual satisfaction. We're interested in their safety. We're interested in their health and well-being, and we're interested in them treating partners in ways that are with care love, respect, connection. And they're not going to get that there. You know, when I talk to boys, it's, I'll say just, if this is what you want from your sexual encounters, pornography is not going to get you there and it may actually undermine it. So, you know, there, there was a subset of boys who, who I talked to who said, I could not square watching that with my views on women and equality, so I stopped. That was a pretty small subset. Um, that takes a lot. I of... never. Yeah, most of them. I mean, I never ask a boy in all my interviews, like, have you ever watched porn? That would have been. That would have just blown my credibility to hell. I would say, when did you first see it? That's a great tip that I hope everybody hears. When did you first see it? Because they all have. Is much less humiliating of a question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and all of it. I mean, it's it's all about trying to have a discussion that is not about shame and blame. And also, I what I think doesn't work especially well in terms of talking to boys is the it degrades women aspect. 
I don't think they care that much about that. I mean, they'll, and I've had conversations also with boys about racism in pornography, which is a huge thing if you look at it. And I do suggest, especially for mothers, that they go like on Pornhub and look if they haven't, because whatever is in your head is wrong if you haven't done that. And it's not going to do anything weird to your computer or anything like that. But racism is, is a huge thing. And I'll say, and I would say to boys, you ever notice the racial dynamics in pornography, like the really racist racial dynamics? And they kind of go, hmm, well, I'm already suspending so much disbelief when I walk in the door there that that's just another thing I, you know, I suspend. <laughs> so, you know, and we haven't really, I mean, that's another really interesting issue when I was doing particularly boys and sex, girls and sex, I didn't break out by race in the same way, but boys and sex, I did more. And looking at the ways that sexual racism was playing into kids' relationships and their presumptions and their stereotypes and their fetishizing or their emasculation or whatever it was uh, across racial lines. It was so interesting to me because they tended to be so very aware of racial dynamics and racism and in, in every other sphere of their lives, but not in the sexual sphere. And it was harming kids across those lines. Is there a benefit or a different kind of, I say this with the understanding that gendering this is complicated, but is there a benefit to having male caregivers, male identifying caregivers, dads or a friend who's a, you know, a close, mm-hmm. a close trusted source in your, in your family? If you have if there is no dad, a dad figure, mm-hmm. is there a benefit to having them talk to boys about porn? It, it, does it come across differently? Well, I think that there's a benefit to having male figures talk to boys about all aspects of sexuality, including the emotional piece. And what boys would say to me was that they wished they wanted to have those conversations with their fathers, as awkward as it would be. And really, they really did say, especially the emotional piece around sex, they found confusing and they wanted to know. They wanted to know about their father's regrets. They wanted to know a lot of things from their dads. With girls, if I would say, what did you, you know, I'd always say, what did you learn from your parents? What did you learn from your mom? What did you learn from your dad? When I'd say from your dad, they would just laugh. They would just laugh. Like 99 out of 100 of them just laugh. And the boys too, they would just kind of roll their, you know, they, they would say, my dad told me respect women. That was about the extent of it. And I think, again, you have a situation where I don't blame the men of our generation for that. They didn't learn. Their dads didn't tell them. They're confronting a really different parenting reality, too. And they often have been subject to the same kind of emotional diminishment uh, in their capacity to, you know, name, describe, express emotion that all guys are subjected to when they're growing up. So, So it's a challenge for them. But if again, if they can get past that, if they can have those conversations, if they can find their way in whatever, again, wherever they can start, you know, wherever they can start, it's going to enhance the relationship and it's going to help that child be able to have difficult conversations themselves. It is such a service. I really appreciate it. And I think that the more we can talk about these things, the more we can prepare our own nervous systems for the process of helping support our kids as they're navigating. And stay, we have to stay a little bit ahead, you know, in terms of like, be ready for the next phase, whether it's that you're, I mean, I I just remember when my daughter was like, I don't know, five or six, like the, she was eating dinner and suddenly the fork stopped halfway to the mouth 
she kind of looked up and she said, I know that it takes a sperm and an egg to have a baby, but how does the sperm get from the penis right. into the uterus? Right. Yeah. And my husband kind of looked at me like, and I said, such a good question. After dinner, let's go look at your book and we'll read about that. We were ready, you know, or when she said, yeah. what about the friend of hers who had two mommies? Mm-hmm. How did they do it? You know, that was like a minute later. She asked that question, you know, and I was like, great question. Let's look at your book. And we have the answer to that right here. You know, like, to, and, and when they're older to have the resources, again, there's so many on my website because so they, or even just give them the website page so they can look at the resources themselves and educating yourself, the books that, that, or the websites or whatever that help parents not giving you the script again, but helping you to think about what you should think about and also think about your own relationship to these issues. I always say everybody, I think, should read Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. that book, but I, I just in think, the show notes as well. Yeah, it is a profound book in understanding female sexuality. She started writing it because she was teaching human development in college and girls would in their evaluations or sometimes come to her in office hours and say, yeah, you know, I don't think I have a clitoris. I think I was born without one, or I think I'm broken. And she got that so much that she thought I've got to do something about this. And she wrote a book explaining all the science of desire for women. And I think that that, that book as a, you know, as a woman who writes about these issues, I learned so much there. And as a parent trying to talk to girls, boys, everybody else about sexuality, you learn so much about it. And one of the metaphors that she uses that I really love is the garden. And this is for all people, not not just girls. The garden metaphor that when we're born, we have this little plot of land that is our sexual self. And in our early years, we don't really have a choice about what's planted in that garden by the media, by our culture, by our parents, by our religion. Things grow. And some of those things are lovely plants and a lot of those things are weeds. And then at a certain point, the stewardship of that garden gets transferred over to us. And we have to look it over and decide what we want to keep, what we want to get rid of, what else we want to plant. And I think that's just a great metaphor for how we think about learning about sexuality and teaching sexuality. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.